Welcome to CropSense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, a field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today, we have Dr. Matthew Van, tobacco specialist with North Carolina State University. Good morning, Dr. Van. Welcome back to the podcast. Morning, Jacob. Good to be with you as always. We appreciate your time today to discuss greenhouse management. Today is January 26th, and it feels like we could be transplanting today. I know growers are going to be itching to get those greenhouses up and growing. So I guess to start off, can you talk a little bit about tray sanitation and different ways to clean trays? That's a really good question, Jacob. And from my perspective, when we think about tray sanitation, that conversation really takes place and it begins as soon as the the transplant season commences. So, you know, I think our standard recommendation would be for growers to transplant their crop. So we're talking April, May, whenever that may be. And then as soon as they're done transplanting for the day, take those trays back to their base operation and first, you know, start with a a pressure washing system to remove all the media and plant debris, because those are going to be materials that a lot of our pathogens are going to overwinter on. And then as soon as they get them cleaned with that pressure washing system, go ahead and put those trays in a steamer. And our current recommendations would be to steam at 176 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes, we see that that generally is a really good practice, particularly with pythium control. I think there's also some older data that that shows that we get good rhizoctonia control. So that may help with some of our greenhouse uh, stem rod issues and, and then some of the target spot issues that we see from time to time. So again, that conversation really is focused on coming out of the greenhouse season and, and finishing transplanting. But for growers that have not you know, really done that, I think there's obviously still a lot of value in kind of following that same process before they might seed trays now. And I know when we use methyl bromide, our fumigation source for tray sanitation, you know, going back kind of the pre-2015 era, it was very common that this time of year, you know, growers would sort of rinse trays off, let let them air dry a little bit, and then they would fumigate with methyl bromide and then turn around and seed the trays as soon as it was uh, safe to do so. I think that's that's still a valuable practice, but when we talk about efficacy, I think that the better practice is going to be practicing a lot of that sanitation and use, utilizing a lot of those strategies closer to the transplant season. And the reason I say that is if we have some of that pathogen in that tray or in those trays and we have some of that media or plant debris that remains on the tray, those pathogens are just going to continue to reproduce and build their population. You're going to have a bigger source of inoculum when you do get ready to, to start seeding the following year, even with a, you know, a steam application and sanitation practices just before seeding greenhouses begin. So again, you can use either one of those systems, but I think we generally find better results when it's done uh, right after transplanting. Can you talk about the importance of testing water prior to seeding trays? Sure. So I'm a I'm a big proponent of having source water tested annually. That's a a very easy thing to do. And there's a number of testing facilities that'll that'll test water. One of the more common ones that I hear growers use and one that I use myself is the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services uh, Agronomic Division. And their recommendations would be turn on your tap, your source water and, you know, let it run for, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes to kind of flush out whatever's in that line. 
then collect the sample in just a, you know, a, a water bottle, 16 ounce water bottle. No need to rinse that bottle out with soap. That's actually discouraged. Just make sure you rinse it with clean water so there's no residue of, if it's a Mountain Dew or a Sundrop bottle, you don't want a bunch of Mountain Dew and Sundrop in there. So let's make sure that it's clean. Uh, but again, no need to do anything extra with soap or bleach or anything like that. We, again, that's absolutely discouraged. So take that 16 ounce sample and at least with our agronomic division here, a grower can submit that water sample and it's it's got a $5 cost associated with it. And for a nominal investment of $5, you get a lot of information about water chemistry and how that water needs to be managed. You know, we're going to find out things about nutrient charge, but really the bulk of our nutrients are going to come from our complete fertilizers that we're applying. So we're going to focus on alkalinity. That's going to be indicative you know, relative to bicarbonate or total carbonate concentrations of whether or not we need to add sulfuric acid to try to mitigate some of that alkalinity concentration. We're going to learn things about calcium concentration and whether there's a an extra need to add a little bit more calcium to the float water. And then other things like boron. There are situations where we have growers that don't have any boron in their float water or in their source water. And we know that we can address that micronutrient before the season even starts. So again, I think it's a great investment investment. investment. And I frame that conversation around growing tobacco in the field. We would tell a grower, hey, you need to you need to have a soil sample for this field if you're going to grow tobacco. We need to know what the pH is and we need to know what residual nutrient concentration looks like. So again, kind of framing those things together, it's a really valuable tool that we can have to really understand what's going on with the water chemistry. To get that pH back down where we want to, we're going to be applying some battery acid quite possibly. And I think we've had some issues in the past as far as maybe applying too much battery acid. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's sort of a, I don't want to say hot button issue, but that's a topic that we've discussed at our meetings this year. And I wouldn't say that what I'm fixing to go into is a widespread rampant issue, but I have noticed some cases where I go in a greenhouse, plants are a little bit stunted, sort of behind, and we get to talking about management and we maybe take a water sample And some of these water samples are reading at being highly acidic. And in some cases, we're talking about a pH that may be 2 to 3 or 3.5. And for reference, we generally like our float water pH to be somewhere between about 5.5 and maybe 6.5. So again, maybe averaging 6.0 is where we would really like to be. And in these situations, we are way, way below that. So again, I don't really have a good answer for for what's happened in those situations, but we know that, again, the growers are using uh, sulfuric acid, battery acid to to minimize some of the alkalinity concentrations. And in in every one of those cases, the growers were adding battery acid at multiple points throughout the greenhouse season. And my general rule of thumb, there's always exceptions to what I'm about to say, but my general rule of thumb would be that if we need to make an alkalinity adjustment, a bicarbonate adjustment with a battery acid or sulfuric acid type product, we probably only need to do that one time. And that would be before we float trays. Go ahead and adjust the alkalinity then. My general rule of thumb is that alkalinity is going to be a much bigger concern as those seedlings begin to germinate and they don't have a lot of resources. They're trying to put on a root system and they don't really have this big root system to take advantage of of what uh, nutrients may be in the media or in the float water. So if we can address alkalinity right there at the beginning of the season and we get a good plant stand and the plants look good, 
I'm probably not super worried about adding battery acid later in the greenhouse season, you know, maybe when we would be uh, adding our second fertilizer application or something like that. So again, there's probably exceptions to that where there's some really high alkalinity issues in certain spots of the state, but where we're a lot more moderated, I think just one application will do that. We generally, uh, depending on what units you want to use, we don't want to see alkalinity over 100 parts per million or two milliequivalents per liter. So again, we'll address that early on. And, and if we can kind of hover at or just above that, those tolerances or those thresholds throughout the season, I think we're going to be in a good spot. You know, we probably don't want to be at 500 parts per million in the middle of the season, but if it's moderate and, and around that threshold, I think we can live there comfortably. Can you talk about seeding date and the importance of temperature fluctuation as it relates to getting good seed germination? Yep. So that's really, once we float trays, the temperature management is probably the key thing that we focus on. And if you look at our, our standard recommendations, we recommend a minimum temperature of 68 degrees Fahrenheit in the greenhouse and a maximum of about 86 degrees Fahrenheit in the greenhouse. And, you know, that temperature fluctuation is key because as the seed experiences that temperature fluctuation, and I'm going to use kind of a strange analogy, so just kind of bear with me on this. But as the seed experiences that temperature fluctuation, it essentially thinks that it's on top of the soil surface because of that rapid change and wide change in the temperature. And that triggers the seed to go ahead and say, hey, I'm in a, I'm in a place where conditions are favorable. I'm at a spot top of the soil that I can... I can germinate and grow. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And, and the reason that we don't want a, a constant temperature, and let's say a constant temperature of something like 75 or 80 degrees, is because that constant temperature would be indicative of a temperature profile that you would see deeper in the soil profile where you don't have those big swings in temperature fluctuation. And in that situation, kind of using a, an analogy, if you will, the seed would think that it's buried somewhere beneath the soil surface. And it just doesn't have the energy reserves to push through the soil profile like we would see with a corn seed or a soybean seed to then be exposed to sunlight. So again, the temperature fluctuation is a is just a trick we can use to, to really push germination as early and get it maximized as much as we can uh, within probably the first maybe seven to 10 days after those trays are floated. So again, the key is keep it between 68 and 86, let the fluctuation take place. If we go below 68 degrees uh, during germination, you're gonna see delayed germination because this is a tropical plant, doesn't really like the cooler temperatures. And then certainly as you start to climb up above 86, and certainly as we get into conditions above 100, we worry about it just being too hot in a greenhouse and having you know negative effects on plant stands for the opposite reason there. All right. I know some people like to get started early as far as seeding trays. So can you talk a little bit about seeding date and maybe being too early, maybe a little a little worse than being a little too late? Yeah, so this is something we saw a fair amount last year, and I think to really set up this particular part of the conversation, we've got to go back, you know, roughly one year. And if we go back to the sort of middle of winter of 2023, it was exceptionally warm. We had very few, very few cool to cold days in North Carolina. We had great sunlight. It was extremely dry. So, you know, you had these beautiful days. And I think the temptation became for some growers to take advantage of those conditions, burning less fuel to heat the greenhouse. You get good plant stands because the sun's up and it's out all day long. You're not worried about cloudy days, limiting or delaying germination. 
so, you know, there's a lot of reasons for, for seeding when they did, but in some cases we had growers that were seeding about two weeks early and that's all well and good. It takes us about 60 days to grow a field ready transplant, but if environmental conditions change and when those plants are ready to go to the field, if the soil's cold, if it's damp, if it's rainy, they've got to then hold those plants a little bit longer in the greenhouse until they, until conditions are better outside. And we did experience that. Again, we went through a hot, dry winter. And as soon as planting season showed up, temperatures fell, it started raining and a lot of growers just couldn't get to the field when their plants were ready. So then they're holding those plants for another two to three weeks. And how do you hold plants when they're that old? You're clipping them every day. That brings about the potential for more disease issues. They get leggy, they get stemmy in the greenhouse, and that just creates a lot of plant stand issues moving forward. So I think we were lucky that we didn't have any massive losses. Transplant supply was generally pretty tight last year, and we knew that even before we got to the transplanting season. So we made it work. But again, all things considered, I think it's important to sort of forecast out and say, look, I typically start transplanting tobacco around April 25th and then back up 60 days from there. You know, we don't need to be holding these plants in the greenhouse any longer than we absolutely have to. And that's just a good reminder as we, you know, start to look at, at seeding greenhouses here over the next few weeks. All right, so we've got sanitized trays and we've got our water ready to go. We've got to make sure we've added whatever needed as far as battery acid to make sure that water is in the right situation. We've seeded our trays. We've floated our trays. So I guess the next thing we're going to need to look at is uh, when to add our fertilizer to that float bed. Oh, yeah. So this is probably one of the more common issues that I've seen for the last two or three years. Again, you know, I'll get calls, hey, my plants don't look great. They're small. They've been in the greenhouse for three or four weeks, and they just aren't really developing like they should. So we go out and make a farm visit. And what I have consistently found is that in those situations, we've got growers and transplant producers that are simply adding their first application of fertilizer way later than is recommended. So we would recommend that the first application of fertilizer be applied to the float beds about seven to 10 days after those trays are floated. And, you know, we don't like to pre-charge the float bed with fertilizer, because we want to mitigate any soluble salts injury. So we wait again about a week to 10 days. And that typically allows, you know, us to get our, our germination up and going. Plants are starting to grow just a little bit. The fertilizer is introduced to the float bed. It's wicked into the tray cells. And this all seems to happen on a pretty good sequence. About the time the, the plants start to really run out of the small amount of fertilizer charge that is in the media, the fertilizer's coming in from the float bed and they really don't miss a beat. So in these situations I'm describing, I'm going out maybe a month after the greenhouse has been seeded and either no fertilizer has been put in the float bed yet, or it was added maybe a day or two uh, before I was called. And I'm showing up on farms at a time when growers should be adding their second application of fertilizer and they're just beginning to put fertilizer in for the first time. So again, that creates some variation in seedling size. You see a lot of stunted plants. Sometimes you can start to see some nutrient deficiencies beginning to show. You'll see a little bit of yellowing. So again, just a general reminder, our standard recommendation would be for the first application of a complete fertilizer to go in the bed seven to 10 days after we float trays. And then the second application would be about three or four weeks later. So again, 60 day window to grow the plants, 
that first application of fertilizer seven to 10 days after we float. And then the second application would be about 28 to 30 days after we float trays. And again, I think that prescription is really all we need to do. I've done it countless times in research programs, been very successful with it. And I think the real important thing here to remember is it doesn't matter, you know, what media brand a grower is using to grow their seedlings with. All of the tobacco media has a just a small charge of fertilizer in it. So that's not meant to be this big source of fertilizer that's going to push those plants for three or four weeks. It's there to really help those seedlings start to grow immediately after germination. And then that's really it. So, you know, there's just not a lot there to begin with. And that's by design. We're trying to mitigate and sort of exclude injury from soluble salts. So the growers really have to focus on these application dates to, to be successful. Is there anything else you think we need to discuss before we, uh, we wrap this uh, podcast up? Jacob, I think that's it, man. We're looking forward to a good season. I think by and large, the 2023 season ended very positively. Our growers, in conversations I've had with them and, and had with our county agents, most growers had a really good yield last year. Tobacco sold well. I think there's some excitement out there about the 2024 season. So we're excited to see what comes. So there'll be more to follow about other things we need to be looking for in March and April. But for right now, I think this greenhouse focus is where we need to be. Well, we sure thank you for your time today, Dr. Van, and we'll certainly visit with you a little bit later in the greenhouse season to talk about maybe some diseases and how to get those plants ready to go into the field to start the season off strong. But we certainly do appreciate your time today, Dr. Van. Yep. Thank you for having me, Jacob. As always, I really enjoyed it. And if you have any questions about your tobacco greenhouse production, call your local cooperative extension agent and they'll be happy to come out and help. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And as always, thanks for listening to Crop Sense, because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense.